Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are, you know, we're back on the, on the subject that we've been on for probably, what, the last, like, five or six Yeah, it's episodes? kind of like the Josh Marshall impeachment briefing <laughs> <laughs> podcast. Totally, totally, totally. So we're going we're, uh, gonna to get back into it today, and we have our, uh, our normal crew and, and kind of our normal guest. That's now, right. Which is Josh Kavinsky since since hello, he's, hello. he's Mr. Ukraine. Hey, Josh. <laughs> yeah. And Kate Riga, as always, how are you? I'm good. Hello, everyone. Good. All right. Well, before we uh, dive into today's impeachment business, we have a little business of our own to take yeah. care of. Breaking news in the cold brew world. Grady's Cold Brew is now shipping all of its liquid products nationwide. Now everyone has access to all the products that made Grady's famous. 32-ounce bottles of New Orleans-style concentrate, 42-serving bag and boxes, and even single-serve bottles. Drink it straight, mix it in your favorite milk, or spike it for a caffeinated cocktail. Grady's is brewed and bottled daily at their brewery in the Bronx, so bottle ship cold for peak freshness. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. Nice. Nice to know. How do you feel? Knocked it out of the yeah, park, in I, my own opinion. I was going to say. One that shot. Was, that one was shot. Good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was one that take, was, everyone. That was the, uh, that, that was, what is it? The practice, not the practice, you know. Yeah, we're doing it first. We're doing it live. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah, the impeachment inquiry continues to march on. I feel like each week we're talking about a new blockbuster testimony, and that's no different today. I mean, uh, last night, the prepared testimony of uh, National Security Council official Alexander Vindman, he's a lieutenant colonel uh, in the Army. His testimony came out and, you know, again, is not good news for the president. Uh, some of the highlights are... Well, it's also not good lo- news for this Gordon Sunland. Exactly, yeah, I'd say it's good, actually worse news for him. Yeah, and we can get to that yeah. as well. Yeah, some of his... I mean, I think Josh Kavinsky, tell me if I'm wrong, is this the first official we've who has appeared in the impeachment inquiry, who was actually on the call on yeah. Ju- July 25th. Yeah, he is. He's the first to testify before Congress who sat in on the call. Right. Yeah. And the first White House official, right, to buck their directive not to testify. I guess that's right. The, Fiona Hill would technically yeah. be a White House official, right? But, she's, but she'd already left. She'd, she'd left. left. Yeah, yeah, so that's, a key, currently that's a key difference. Yeah. Wait, who's that one who... Uh, there's someone else who has we were talking about last week who has agreed to testify. I don't think he's actually testified yet. He's He's a... There's another NSC. Tim Morrison? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Morrison. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. But I think that there's there's still some... It, I actually wrote something about this last week. There's still some unclarity because it seems so... It, it, like, why aren't they fighting it? Like, why isn't the White House fighting it more? So there's like a little sense of like, already, maybe he's going to show up and, and, and then not... You know, you can show up and then just refuse to right. discuss certain things. Or I, I saw someone else speculating that maybe his lawyer has been so public about saying, all right, we're going to testify, just letting you know that this is sort of like telling the White House, like, okay, 
you know, <laughs> right. now or never. Yeah. If you want to do something, you got to do it now. Yeah. But 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 yeah, that's a good point. He's he is. Um, it's interesting too, though. There's another interesting wrinkle there that he's serving military, mm-hmm. and that creates. I'm not exactly sure of the precise legal issues involved, but for a member of the military, just to say, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna follow your that that adds some other stuff as opposed mm-hmm. to a civilian that or a retired sense. military. And he showed but, up today in his full dress uniform. I mean, and that that in itself sends a, a visual kind of cue to his. I don't know, his position, his status. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, I think you, like, that's not voluntary. Like, you, you kind of have to. I remember it was a big deal when, um, what's the guy uh, who, was the, who was the national security advisor before Bolton, who was still- McMaster. Su- right. Yeah. He was still serving, but sort of for propriety reasons, they sort of agreed that he would dress in civilian clothes right. on the job. Right. Because- for, you know, whatever. Yeah. So. so Josh Kavinsky, tell us, uh, tell us some of the highlights of, of uh, Vindland's testimony that came out last night and that I guess, assuming he's maybe already delivered to the house or, you know, was doing sure. this morning. So, I mean, there were two kind of episodes that he bore direct witness to that he mentioned in his testimony. One was, as we discussed, the July 25th phone call. The other one was this July 10th meeting um, with like top Ukrainian officials at the White House. And that's the meeting where Gordon Sondland uh, broached the issue of a uh, investigations uh, what happened was basically is like the ukrainians asked about setting up a meeting with trump and the, their new president vladimir zelensky and uh the sondland responded by starting to talk about like them opening investigations into the 2016 elections and biden um and so bolton jumps in shuts it down it's where he calls it a drug deal but the important thing is is that vindman bore direct witness to this he corroborates you know previous testimony about it but also that he uh, went and reported it to the NSC lawyer afterwards. And, and he mentioned this was July yeah. 10th, is that right? It was July 10th, right. yeah. So it was two weeks before the um, phone call. Yeah. And this is the drug deal meeting, right? It or, is, yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> so it was two weeks before the phone call. And one of the interesting things about the call, too, is that there were a lot of top national security officials in the White House who were trying to stop it from happening, specifically Bolton. Uh, reportedly was against Trump doing this phone call because he thought it was going to be a disaster. Um, and so the fact that there was this sort of prelude to it on this July 10th meeting suggests it kind of gives us more reason or it gives us more of an insight into, you know, what people in the White House might have been thinking about why that phone call to Zelensky would have, could have been such a disaster. And as we know, ended up being such a disaster. Well, and it's always I think it's always important that we should be clear what we mean and what they probably mean by disaster, right. because I'm sure from Trump's point of view, it went great. Right. It didn't like it was exactly what he wanted to do. He's calling it it a perfect call. Well, right. But also kind of like, I mean, whether it's perfect in legal terms, kind of like I think that's probably exactly how he saw it going. But disaster in the sense of he's going to do some illegal stuff. So we need to stop that call from happening to at least like limit the damage. Right. And the other thing that the Vindman testimony reflects is we were talking about this a little bit yesterday on Slack, but like. Uh, there's a question of like, you know, if, if the White House, if Trump is the White House and Trump is engaging in this conspiracy, there's and sometimes it, it, there's a question of like, you know, who we, we, then we talk about the White House, like learning of this conspiracy, learning of the pressure campaign against Ukraine. There's this question of like, well, who are you really talking about? But what the Vindman testimony really reveals is that him, John, uh, Fiona, not John Hill, Fiona Hill and John Bolton, who uh, were, you know, all along very clearly kind of standing against it. Um, and we're taking notes and everything that was going on and basically aware of, 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 of the gravity of the situation. And so do we have any insight of what happened after he reported these incidents to the NSC lawyer? Uh, we don't. We know from Taylor's testimony that um, 
you know, Bolton was aware of what was happening and right. yeah, tried to stop the phone call from happening, but it's not clear where it went from then. Okay. From then, yeah. It was well, later referred to the DOJ, but yeah. One thing, I mean, and I think we should, we should, uh, kind of step back and 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 make sure our listeners know about the kind of the dramatis personae here and who you know who are these different different people but one thing occurs to me when you talk about a faction is that you know Bolton Fiona Hill uh this guy th- this is like pretty much everybody in there's always this funny thing about the NSC because it is it's obviously part of the government, but it's specifically people work directly from the president they're sort of his person in a sort of a you know the org chart of government but the point, the, the list of people you just mentioned there, they are kind of like the formal government. That's kind of everybody, right? I mean, the national security, the national security advisor, the lead person on this part of the world, the next person down who sort of covers, you know, more specifically, you have a a uniform military person who's an advisor. On, I mean, that is kind of everybody. There's sort of like the faction is everybody involved. It's that there are these other people who who are not really supposed to be involved in it at all like the the ambassador to the to the European Union the energy per- secretary <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. that person has no has no brief for this i mean there are other people there are people at the state department there would be a you know assistant secretary of state for that region you know there's various there's the ambassador so you have this i think it's important to focus everybody on the fact that kind of everybody who is supposed to be in the room is against this but there's these other people who, in some cases, are like the president's private lawyer who have nothing to do with anything, or people in the government who have who, who this is not part of their portfolio at all. And and you have this funny thing where they're trying to keep things on track, and these other kind of like, you know, weirdos keep coming in. And but clearly, they're the ones who are doing what the president wants. So you have this just kind of like bizarre yeah. uh, set of circumstances. That's interesting. And I guess is the only exception to that what Volker doesn't isn't por- Ukraine in his yeah. portfolio. Well, portfolio? he's and he was a, yeah. he was a professional too. And so there's a big question about why he was willing to get involved right. in all this. But yeah, right. I guess I mean he's he's the special envoy, and not every country has a special envoy, right, right. but it's a particular crisis right. kind of country for the U.S. right now. So that makes sense. Was there was there did. Did that position exist under Obama? No, what he ended up doing was basically, so Victoria Newland basically had the portfolio that he took over. Right, okay. Um, but the idea was that, yeah, to give the conflict special attention and all the negotiations around resolving it, he would be, he would be representing the U.S. in that. So I mean, it wasn't a bad idea. Right. No, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it makes yeah. sense. You have someone since, since it's going to bring in, it's going to, I mean, you have the ambassador and that person is just on that country, but it's going to bring in a lot of different stuff. So yeah, it does make sense. But you're right. He's the sort of the one exception of a person whose job really was about this, who who was also part of the Back cabal. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we should talk a little bit about the reaction to Vindman's testimony today. We had Fox News last night. John Yu, former DOJ guy, go on Laura Ingram's show saying... There was some detail in this New York Times story that Vinland speaks Ukrainian as well. Is that right? He's like a Ukrainian-American guy. Yeah, he's from, I mean... He's when, from the former Soviet Union? Yeah, he's from Odessa, which is funny because you also have like... Lev Par- basically, both him and Lev Parnas have like almost exactly the same background, where they're both these like Ukrainian Jewish emigres from Odessa who lived in Brighton Beach and like grew up there in the 70s and 80s. Felix Sater as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's just like this like small world that's all that of a sudden... small world. Like, dom- yeah. dominate, <laughs> really like dominating, like, world. Yeah. dominating our politics. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, well, John, you was talking about, yeah. you know... Um, uh, Vinland speaking in Ukrainian. In some cases, like, oh, that sounds like espionage. And this morning, uh, Brian Kilmeade and Fox and Friends was saying something like, oh, he has like an affinity for the Ukrainian people, you know, basically trying to question his loyalty, his 
sense of duty, his patriotism, all that sort of stuff. What do you guys make of that, that thread that's st- starting to kind of unspool? Yeah, I mean, well, part of it is like so predictable what they're going to you know, be xenophobic towards him. It's not like that's new from these people. But what really got me was the espionage comment, because that was in the context of Ukrainian officials saying that they um, used Vindemann to try to work with Giuliani better. And they're like, he's like, that sounds like espionage to me. And it's like, what do you mean? Giuliani is not in the government. Like, well, and also, if, <laughs> to there's begin any, with. if there's anybody who would be called espionage here, it's Giuliani. Absolutely. Because he's not even supposed to be involved at all. I mean, right. not that he, not that that is espionage. We don't even have a category for it. But if there's anybody who's not supposed to be in the room, it's Rudy, not this guy. Right. right. Well, I, the thing that struck me about the Fox thing, because as, as we're recording is just after uh, Liz Cheney, to her credit, came forward and said, knock it off. That is totally unacceptable. You shouldn't talk like that. A few other Republicans, uh, you know, kind of higher-ranking leadership Republicans. John Thune echoed Thune the same thing. And I think Senate. Mitt Romney has come out. And right. Well, Romney, at things. least, is less surprising. But, but yeah. Chain, you know, some of these people are usually and, pretty down the line with, with and John stuff. And John Thune, we should mention, after... Bill Taylor's testimony last week said like, oh, the picture that's coming out of this is not looking good. So he's sort of, I guess, opened the door a little bit to... He's Romney curious. Yeah, <laughs> acknowledge that. It's surprising. Yeah, it is kind of surprising. That doesn't seem to be a huge personality fit to me for him to be a, a pusher, you yeah, know? absolutely. Well, I, I do think, you know, he's... I think he's number, maybe he's number three in the leadership. I yeah, can't remember. Yeah, he's the whip, right? right three, yeah. Okay, so he's number three. And... I keep hearing that in their caucus meetings, the Senate, the Republican senators are a lot more bummed out about this than they're letting on. And even people who you'd be surprised kind of saying, we, you know, are really, I'm not sure distressed about it. It's, it's more in self-serving terms, kind of like, I don't want to talk about this on TV. I don't want to get asked about it. I don't want to have to defend this stuff because it's just indefensible. One thing I would notice, though, about, about Cheney, what struck me is that uh, it it starts on Ingram's show, it, then it's on the Fox Morning Show. It's a very Fox thing. And you have this thing where clearly in that, in the sort of the Fox garbage ecosystem, this kind of stuff gets kicked up. And you can see, even over a period of like 12 hours, it already kind of takes fire and it's building momentum in sort of the, the Foxosphere, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have some like elected officials the next morning like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like even, you know... Like even pretty garbage people like Liz Cheney are shocked, and you can just see how that that Fox ecosystem is is it, it's like one of these things, uh, you know, like with the bell jar, right? You get you start breathing your own air, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just wild. Yeah, and then I mean, I think even you know sometimes elected officials do pick up on that narrative or try to push it forward or legitimize it or whatever. I think Mark Meadows, I forget exactly what his comment was, but something like, yeah, maybe it's worth kind of asking questions about this guy's credibility or something like that. So, you know, they're in the hands of a sort of different type of politician. It can sometimes catch on. Well, and it's kind of interesting because this came up a bit when we were talking about Bill Taylor and how we were saying like, that's someone who's harder to discredit than the more political figures because it's like, he's been a lifelong diplomat, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, and now you're asking Republicans to go after a member of the military in his full dress uniform. Yeah. Like there are going to be at least some of them that still have vestiges of what they used to be when they didn't go after soldiers, you know, mm-hmm. or when that's a bad look back in there. Although I'll say, I mean, if you remember the 2004 presidential campaign, they had a pretty easy time of it with John, with John yeah. Kerry. <laughs> so true, it's, yeah. it's not true. that it's it's not that it's not new. But even with John Kerry, they weren't accusing him of being a spy. Right. right. I mean, it, it's 
and this is like I was even surprised when I saw people tweeting about last night with uh, the Laura Ingram episode. Like, wow. Like, like you know, we were just kind of, maybe we heard his name over the last week, but this is, he's only really kind of moved to the center like in the last 24 hours and you're already like, he may actually be a spy yeah. working for Ukraine. Like, what? Yeah, I mean, he's one of like a dozen plus people we've either heard from or are going to hear from over the next, you know, week or or more. It's not like he's... I mean, he's central to the story, obviously, but he's not a household name or anyone yeah. who's even shown up in, like, you know, the transcripts, the memos, all that sort of stuff. And, I mean, the function of his testimony so far hasn't really been to introduce anything new. It's just been to kind of corroborate more closely what the things that we already suspected are kind of need to be true. Which yeah. kind of shows what a corner they're backed into, that they're re- reacting this, you know, vociferously to someone who exactly is not breaking news, you know, other than saying, backing up what we've already learned. And I think, Josh, tell me if I'm right on this, but... From his from his prepared remarks, it's really about that July 10th meeting, and all he really does is confirm that contrary to what Sunland said in his testimony, yeah, everybody said this was a bad idea, and right. they told you to your face, and and so they kind of catch Sunland out, not in a nominal lie, like kind of like you lied, like it's material, yeah, yeah, a very it's material thing, but yeah, he doesn't really introduce anything new; he just adds some confirmation to what pretty was pretty clearly already the case yeah and the other component of his testimony is like a pretty i mean he you know and this i think goes to him being uh you know a military officer but he gives like a pretty cogent like analysis of why this is damaging to u.s national security and that hasn't i think that thread has kind of been lost like about everything else but uh, that coming from somebody who like served in iraq and like Mm -hmm. was injured and wounded and you know all that uh, i think it just adds a lot of credibility to that kind of part of the narrative that that's a really good point because you're absolutely right that he's the first one who in his prepared remarks has made that point clear and that he could see kind of, you know, over the horizon, kind of like, all right, you get Ukraine to help you guys, then Democrats are going to be against Ukraine always. And then all, you know, these kind of dominoes fall from it. No, that's a very good point. And he, and he spells it out like in two or three sentences. Yeah. And I feel like Bill Taylor kind of raised those, that context too, right? Of like Russian aggression in Ukraine and like that, that is sort of the, you know, when you hold up the military, that is the context in which we're discussing this, you know, Crimea being annexed, sort of proxy battles and troops, you know, within the Ukrainian borders. I mean, I think it's been several years since we've seen the dramatic images of like Kiev and stuff. So people kind of forget that's still ongoing, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's people are still dying every day. Uh, yeah, but it's forgotten about, but it's true. Yeah. So I, th- I wondered if we could shift gears a little bit, catch our listeners up on some of the other events that have happened since we were last in the studio. And one of those is the arraignment of Les Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, yeah. uh, two of Rudy Giuliani's pals who were indicted. Was that like two weeks ago now they were indicted? It was, uh, it was October 10th. Yeah. They, uh, so yeah. I guess coming up about that yeah. on campaign finance uh, charges. Anyways, they were in a New York City courtroom last week that you that you attended, Josh. Is that right? Yeah, it was fun. Tell us about, yeah, what was that scene like? I imagine there were lots of reporters, lots of camera crews and things like that. And obviously you can't bring your phone into like a federal courtroom, right? So you yeah. were limited as far as, you know, you can't take pictures, you can't do this or that, but kind of just set the scene for us about what that day was like. Right. So it was, um, there were already a lot of reporters in the courthouse because there were uh, arguments in the Second Circuit, which is in the same building right before the arraignment. And those, it was about a Trump case, uh, about a subpoena for his tax returns from 
the Manhattan DA. Right, so, so you were, you were kind of pulling double duty. Yeah. So I sense. like so I left that and I didn't have enough time to like go out and file a story about it. So I went down to the cafeteria to get some coffee, and there was Igor Fruman like sitting there uh, with his lawyers, just you know, hanging out, which was very funny. Um, like so how many people? How many people were with him or in his posse? Did you? He had. It was his. It was, it was his attorney, Todd Blanche, who also represents Manafort. Um, in New York, and then uh, I think some like legal like associate yeah. was also there. Gotcha. Yeah, um, and you know they were chatting. Was it, you know, Fruman? It's interesting. He's like way less kind of inter- integrated into the U.S. than Parnas is. Like he speaks with a pretty thick accent. Mm-hmm. He just like carries himself. Yeah. I was going to ask you about this because I saw in his bio that Parnas I think moved here when he was three. Yeah. So I would assume he speaks with no speaks English with no, no accent at all. He has like a Brooklyn accent. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Brooklyn accent, but no no, <laughs> no foreign accent. No. Yeah. Right. right, 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 right I wasn't contradicting. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. Sorry, go on. Uh, so they, um, and, you know, it's, it was reflective of their personalities because Parnas basically showed up early and was just sitting in, a, what, do you, what do you call it? Like the, the, he was basically sitting at his, like, seat in the courtroom. Like the holding chair. Oh, right, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, just like, I mean, for, you know, probably like 45 minutes until it started. So everybody could see him and he was sort of grinning and, like, he was very much like kind of like playing it up, whereas Parnas was, like, hiding in the basement. Um, which, if you look at, like, their backgrounds, like, in the picture, it's always Parnas in the picture is, like, kind of grinning with, like, the politicians and Fruman's always kind of off to the side. Right. Even though he's the one who supposedly is the one who had the money. Um, that Fruman is. Yeah, Fruman is. But that's separate. So with, with, with the um, with the arraignment, yeah, so it, it starts, you know, Fruman shows up, the judge comes out, um, and it's all pretty much like, it's basically standard. What happens is, is like, the prosecutor discloses that the investigation's ongoing, they've done a bunch of sor- search warrants, but towards the end, what happens is really interesting. It's that uh, Parnas's attorney gets up and just kind of starts like rambling and says like, hey, look, judge, like, I can't invoke executive privilege but you know my client was working for Giuliani and Giuliani was also his attorney and Giuliani was also Trump's attorney so we think that there might be issues with both the attorney client and executive privilege um, which you know just so listeners understand executive privilege is the privilege that protects presidential communications and that you know the, the reason under the underlying that is that uh, if, if you access them it's going to either compromise certain sensitive national security issues or damage the president's ability to like enforce to do to basically complete duty, fulfill his duties as president um, so not sure those are implicated here, but Parnas' attorney was basically saying, like, look, there's evidence in this case that might uh, that we think might fall into that privilege. That privilege has been stretched kind of beyond any meaning over the past like nine months. But still, it's uh, it was a really significant assertion, and it kind of upended the like all the proceedings. And tell us, it, go yeah, ahead, and, you go ahead, Dave. And tell us, like, what is he talking about when he says executive privilege, privilege there? Conversations these guys had with Trump? Would it be with Giuliani because Giuliani is Trump's lawyer? I mean, sort of what it would be the specifics there? Well, it, it's a great question. And I mean, we don't know. It, 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 I mean, what he's kind of saying is that, yeah, I mean, is that there's a privilege that that the work they were doing would somehow be covered by privilege that applies to Trump's job as, as president of the United mm-hmm. States. What's weird is because I had thought going in, I mean, it always seemed a a a sort of an empty assertion of privilege, but in John Dowd's initial, I think, letter to Congress, he basically had all these overlapping privileges. And at least the one that was, you know, notional was Rudy is representing Trump. He's his personal lawyer. And these guys are kind of like his, Rudy's investigators as part of of representing Trump. Ergo, they, you know, it's part of the legal representation. So they're covered by attorney-client privilege. I mean, that's pretty... That's a that's pretty thin, um, but on executive privilege, even I mean, a if the argument would have to be that that Trump was like carrying out foreign policy through these guys, which is a which would be a weird thing to admit, <laughs> but even if um, 
but they seem to be saying it's actually subsidiary to Rudy. So sort of like, you know, Rudy yeah. is covering is is uh, carrying out foreign policy for the United States, you know, authorized by Trump. And also his like good fellas who are doing <laughs> stuff for right. him are covered by yeah. like even if you even if you bought that Rudy is covered in some sense by executive privilege is really a stretch. Like his like flunkies wouldn't be. I mean, it's but, but here here's a question I wanted to ask. Did you get a sense, any sense, when you heard the lawyer saying this? Is this guy just you know kind of wing it on his own and kind of like all right, I've come up with whatever I can for my client? Or did you get a sense that kind of like maybe they've talked to like Trump's lawyers or Trump and Trump is sort of like you know okay because because as you yeah. as you quoted him saying he can't. Ex- he can't um, invoke executive privilege. So, I mean, the attorneys that they both hired are experienced, and it just felt very pointed. Um, like, it was like sort of a meandering monologue, but it was like the judge literally asked, like, okay, does anybody else have anything to say? And he just sort of stands up and is like, and he's, he said certain things. Um, you know, he said, uh, well, maybe the DOJ or the OLC is going to have to get involved. It was that kind of thing. And then the other kind of giveaway I thought was that he sat down and one of the uh, federal prosecutors stood up and said, like, look, we haven't discussed this. This is not the forum to discuss this. This is the first time this issue has been raised. So it, it, it sort of struck me as maybe some kind of attempt to go over the heads of SDNY and signal something. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. Well, I guess we still, we still have unknown kind of like, is someone signaling them, Yeah. you know, from from Maine Justice or the White House to kind of like go down this road. And on the privilege, so bizarre. And on the privilege point, the other issue that people have pointed out is that uh, Parnas was working for Dimitri Firtash, um, uh, you know, on his, on his, <laughs> his remind, for, remind for his listeners who that guy is. Yeah, so he's a Ukrainian oligarch who's been uh, stranded in Vienna since 2014. Uh, he was, after an indictment was unsealed about um, him like bribing Indian officials to try and corner this like one mineral that was being used to build the Boeing 787. Uh, it's a weird story, but like it, it, the, the indictment is sort of seen as like a stand in for what they actually want him for, um, which is that he was a middleman in like the Russia Ukraine gas trade. And uh, uh, there are WikiLeaks cables where he admits to US embassy officials that he like has ties to Russian organized crime. You know, he's been a huge like kind of kingmaker in Ukraine and Ukrainian politics. And the timing of the unsealing of the indictment was like a week after the revolution in 2014. So it's, I mean, his argument all along has been like, the case against me is politically motivated. Um, you know, I don't, th- I think the consensus is that that's not like entirely without merit, or at least there's an argument there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it seems like a yeah. case where the charges are probably legitimate, right. but the U.S. has other, they have other interests reasons to go after in him. going after like this Like getting guy. Yeah. Capone on tax evasion. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just yeah. because, I, you know, politics, I think it's important to note here that when we say politics, we're not talking about partisan politics in the U.S. We're talking about the U.S. has certain geostrategic interests in Ukraine with international organized crime. Um, yeah. Yeah. So he, um, so I mean, he, you know, he's, he's, he's not the kind of guy you'd want, I think, being protected by a, a mutual privilege between the president and Firtash. Right. Which is sort of what the, which is also what that assertion in court kind of went to. Well, yeah. also, yeah. I mean, he basically has what amounts, the president basically has what amounts to like a joint defense agreement with this Ukrainian oligarch who is not just the things you just mentioned, but he's also a former business partner of Manafort's. I mean, that's low on the totem pole of his business activities, but also very close to the, to seems to be close to the Kremlin was, was, am I right? Tied to the government that was overthrown in 2014. So like, 
you know, a lot of this is sort of like deja vu all over again right. with what happened in 2016. Right. All right. Anything else you would add about the the arraignment, Josh, or, you know, when we can expect the next appearance by this these guys or kind of, I don't know, what to watch as that case unfolds or is it just kind of slowly working its way through the, the criminal justice system? The next hearings are going to be in December. Okay. Um, so that's the next time we'll see them in court, assuming there's no superseding indictment filed or indictments of anybody else in the right. case. <laughs> I think what people are really watching right now is Giuliani. Yeah. Because the, that investigation right now extends to him. Um, you know, they subpoenaed Pete Sessions, who was the congressman who wrote the letter about demanding Yovanovitch's the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine's removal. Um, it, it, prosecutors are looking at his financial records reportedly. Giuliani said it. Giuliani, Giuliani's, yeah. So and There was a report, too, that there's some counterintelligence angle to the Giuliani yeah. investigation, too, right? What can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, I, it's this one attorney in New York, Kenneth McCallion, who uh, used to represent the prime minister of Ukraine. And I guess at some point last, uh, at the beginning of the year, FBI agents went and like asked him if he knew anything about, basically they told him, like, hey, we're doing a counterintelligence investigation of Giuliani, and people around him, do you know anything about it? Because mm-hmm. he's kind of plugged into that world. Right. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the question, and so Giuliani hired, I guess he was in the market for a criminal defense attorney. Um and the question is, it's just going to be, I mean, you know, where's that investigation going to go? Yeah. Has he found one? I haven't, we, we still don't, I mean, there was that yeah, one guy yeah. who he, who he stopped working with a, a week or two ago. Cause that ago. was just right. to like respond to the subpoena, just to basically say no. Kind well, of, that, right? but that's what, that was the after the fact explanation. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. When he first hired him, there was no sense of like, oh, I'm just bringing this guy in to respond to this one letter. That was supposed to be his lawyer. Right. right. And then he refused to cooperate, co- ah, cooperate with Congress and then suddenly that guy was done. So that was like, yeah. that was weird. That was not, that was certainly not the public understanding at the front end. Kate, you had written something, right? That he was on the lookout. Giuliani was on the lookout for Laura. Were there any names on that list that you no, can recall? Yeah. It was just, um, essentially, I got the sense that he's like asking around, trying to find <laughs> someone who will do it. <laughs> yeah. Also that, um, there was that NBC uh, story about him butt dialing the reporter. Oh, oh God. God. For like, yeah the second time in like three weeks yes i forgot about that and then it was like oh turns out everyone has a giuliani butt dial story (laughs) yeah i guess so he's obviously like pretty active on text and uh, you know no stranger to cable news and things like that yeah well as john oliver pointed out it's extremely hard to butt dial someone with a smartphone so it's kind of shocking how he's (laughs) like it doesn't yeah it doesn't it doesn't recognize your like pocket yeah (laughs) as it does your thumbprint but i guess it's maybe the kind of thing like you were just calling them you put your phone away and then there's some redial thing you yeah. can do easy. I, Could I don't be, know. Yeah. But yeah. the tantalizing thing about that, though, is like with Giuliani, the mystery continues to be how he's getting his money. Yeah. You know, because he, he says, he, about, he, says right? he needs money in yeah. that. He, he does. Mail. Yeah. And there was reporting, I think, from over the weekend or last week with Parnas and Fruman, where I guess like they were, Giuliani was constantly telling them, look, you guys need to give me like another $500,000 or whatever. Like they were constantly trying to come up with the money to like keep Giuliani happy. Um, and so him, like, yeah, on that butt dial saying, like, come on, we need, like, 300000 or whatever. Yeah. However much he said. I mean, it, it fits. I think it's a few hundred thousand. A few hundred thousand. Uh-huh. Which, yeah. I mean, and, it was, is... and it was also get our guy in Turkey to get some yeah. money out of Turkey. <laughs> right. I, like, it's really, you hear stuff like that, and, like, you're operating like that. Once, like, investigators look, like, you're going to, you can't operate like that and not be breaking lots of laws. Yeah. It just, it just, it just works that way. Yeah. Because that, that. In, in that transcript from that, that call, it was this, like, this very mafia kind of thing, like, uh, you know, get, uh, you know, get so-and-so. He'll get some money for us. We're, turkey, the turkey guy. We need some money. And there's that thing where there's that dramatic pause. Like, mm-hmm. it says, like, we need some money. There's silence. Like, it says, like, the transcript says, like, nine seconds. 
and then Rudy's like, money. Like, money. <laughs> you know, like, what is going on here? Yeah. I mean, this is neither here nor there, but like, Giuliani must have like a nice apartment in New York too, right? Like, does he, does he need cash to keep his sort of everyday lifestyle afloat, do you think? Or is it to, to run around the world trying to do Trump's bidding or both? I don't know. Well, you know, one, it, I don't know on that front. I mean, he cert, you certainly get the impression he lives very, very nicely. He's, mm-hmm. he's made tons of money since, since he stopped being mayor. But one thing that jumps out is that he has a divorce proceeding. And this is something that has come up in a lot of the reporting where that requires a lot of money because that is not an amicable divorce. Mm-hmm. He's checked up with this like hospital administrator woman up in New Hampshire who is his new his new person. So that sounds like something that may be putting a lot of – A, a lot of financial pressure on him just to come up with money. Yeah. But also you're in an adversarial divorce proceeding. All of your – financial doings become subject to litigation and sort of like what we talked about i think it was last week josh with parnas that the way he got in trouble was this weird litigation on some scam he was running 10 years ago that forced some of his financial papers into the public and then people saw like oh wow where did you get this money from so what when in some ways giuliani's divorce proceeding may be a bigger threat to him than even this investigation, because um, with the investigation, maybe you have lawyer-client privilege and like you know executive privilege and all this kind of stuff. That doesn't fly in divorce court. And and his ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife clearly wants to crucify him, probably for very good reasons. So all of this stuff, where's your money come from? How much do you have on hand? Where are you getting it from? All of that because can come she may be open. entitled to half of it or some amount of it. Yes, and in the process of determining how much money he has, what his current, you know, how much income he is making, all of that becomes a live part of a divorce yeah, proceeding. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, and it's scheduled to go to trial in January, so I mean, oh, they're really? probably going to settle before that. The, divor- the divorce proceeding? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, <laughs> it's a good time for her to get divorced, man. <laughs> his ability to fight that is very limited. Yeah, especially if you're, if you're also paying for a, criminal, a federal criminal, a criminal defense attorney. Yeah. Yeah, it's not yeah, cheap. It's a lot of money. Yeah, you burn through money really quickly. And, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, one more kind of uh, update on the impeachment week that was. Kate, you had written last week about this Republican stunt during uh, a top Pentagon <laughs> official's testimony last week where they stormed the skiff and there was pizza involved and uh, press conferences and Matt guests scowling and all that sort of stuff. Tell us kind of about about what happened last week. Yeah, I mean, to start with, just the optics of that storming of the hearing room were just so funny to begin with because you basically have a bunch of middle-aged white guys in suits and ties who are like, we're coming for your information. It's like, <laughs> right. okay. <laughs> it's like, oh, a mob of accountants. How scary. But yeah, so uh, Matt, this is something Matt Gates has been doing for a while that he keeps trying to storm into committee hearings of committees that he's not on and the people in there are like you're not allowed you're not on the committee and then he comes out and has a little press little presser where he talks about how there's no transparency blah 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 despite the fact that you know half of all the committees are made up by people of his own party but he seems to take umbrage that he personally is not invited to all the proceedings (laughs) so Anyway, he led many of his peers um, into the room, and the whole thing was a disaster. And Adam Schiff was trying to talk to the sergeant at arms about it. Laura Cooper was testifying that day, a Pentagon official, and she was already in the room prepared to you know, start the hearing. And so 
Democrats came out, you know, being like, this is just so unacceptable. They're trying to intimidate the witness, not to mention that they did a lot of them bring in their electronics to the room, which is... Someone like made a call from inside the skiff, right? Right. Well, who was like, I'm recording from it. Which <laughs> or is, like FaceTiming. Exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. like, that's a huge national security breach, you know, because you don't know what kind of malware has been installed on your phone, can be turned into a listening device, everything. So then they have to get everybody out, go through all their phones, you know, read, set up the room. Kind of scrub the skiff, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And that ended up, I think, delaying proceedings by five or six hours. It's a long time. Right. And then ultimately, you know, not that we're privy to it, it's behind closed doors, but not much has leaked from Cooper's testimony. You know, I'm not sure that we got the sense that it was a huge, big bombshell deal. Not that anyone expected it to. She seemed to be a fairly minor player in all of this. But yeah, I mean, it was also just clearly a desperate attempt to change the narrative because this was a few days after all the Bill Taylor stuff had come out and they were just getting slammed. So they're trying to change the story into... Why is this private? Why is there no transparency? Despite the fact that most investigations start this way, behind closed doors, getting what you can from the witnesses before it goes full spectacle, before they're as influenceable by outside sources. And that is the way that the impeachment is going and will go. Yeah. You know, and also 45, I think, Republicans are on these three committees that are spearheading impeachment. So, Well, wasn't there that thing this morning where it was at Ted Yoho? Like, he's actually on the committee. He could be there and, and, and... in every, you know, in every one of these hearings. And he was on CNN and the CNN host hit him with like, you've actually never showed up once. <laughs> and he, and he has to like, well, that's, let's not get into that or something. He was something like, oh, it's a sideshow. I don't know what I'm, I'm not missing anything or something like that. Yeah. Right? It's like you can't have yeah. it both ways, right. you know, are they being sneaky or are these yeah. whole hearings specious to begin with? No, I think you're totally right though, Kate, in that it, it did, you know, this Republican stunt did come just after the Bill Taylor testimony, which seem you know everyone seems to agree was a damning day of testimony and it's also sort of a savvy move in a way i mean these are closed door interviews you can't see what's going on and all there's a bunch of cameras on capitol hill and oh a bunch of republicans marching down the hall like something to put on tv so and that they succeeded i guess in that what is striking notwithstanding what they have claimed is there's actually been pretty few leaks out of these hearings like usually the prepared department prepared remarks surface Mm -hmm. but i think what's been most striking is just how relatively little comes out like with taylor the there were the prepared remarks and maybe there were a few you know a few stories that kind of like well he kind of said this or kind of said that but there's actually been pretty little and i suspect it's because neither side has a lot of interest for for democrats the prepared remarks are giving them more than enough you know, headlines to keep everything moving. Um, they have an interest in keeping the details kind of under wraps mm-hmm. to keep everybody off guard and not, and not uh, you know, signal to future witnesses how to massage their testimony. And obviously for the Republicans, what's being said sucks for their side. <laughs> so there's not much that, right. that they want to leak, right? They want us. But, but I think that's worth keeping an eye on is that it's pretty hard for me to think about much that we've seen in, in press stories that isn't just from the prepared mm-hmm. ones. Yeah, most of what comes out seems to be Democrats' reactions, right? This was the most serious day I've had on the Hill, or, you know, we just got a push alert, I think, about uh, Vindland's testimony, you know, raised serious alarms or things like that. It's all kind of just emotive reactions yeah, kind of things. Yeah, Not yeah. really like actual, you know, factual statements or bits. And I think what you said about the prepared remarks is a good point because you can usually kind of assume that the main thrust of what this person is there for and their contribution to the case is going to be in their prepared remarks. And of course, not everything, you know, some good questioning could dig things up. But when 
we don't often see very good questioning at these hearings to begin with. So, well, I would say though that in those, I I, I think they're actually using committee committee lawyers for this. Oh, as the are ma- they? I think I'm not sure about that, but I thought I heard that the main questioning is being done by committee well, lawyers. That would be and wise. Those, and those people yeah. are those people are really good questioners. And I think what they're doing is. They do the main questioning, and then someone can like, hey, I, have, you know, so a member right. can say, oh, I have a question, something like that. But so I suspect it's being, it's, it's much more granular, mm. and obviously in a closed door, in a closed door hearing, no one has that incentive. No one's, you know, I'm going to. There's give no a performative speech. stuff, yeah, all, right? All, all that kind of stuff. Um, the one thing, and this occurred to me, Josh, when when you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that. Uh, uh, Vinman is the first one who has testified who was on that call that this seems like their first bite of the apple to really say like is the transcript everything that was in there right yeah it's a really interesting question I hadn't thought of that and, and that I mean he should be able to say 100% because he'll know He'll know kind of like, yeah, I mean, there was maybe one or two things, but that's the gist of it. Or like, no, (laughs) there's this other thing that we haven't talked about yet. And that's the kind of, so I feel like on the one hand, that would maybe be a a case where, where privilege could be asserted, but he's going in there, I think without any, without any White House lawyers. So I think he has to answer and seems like he will answer whatever comes up. So I feel like we should know by the end of the day, like, is that a live issue or is that kind of a, you know, a non-issue? The other thing people I think should be watching for is that there were calls between Pence and Zelensky Mm -hmm. and the White House debating whether or not to release transcript of that as well. You know, Which, it, yeah. the, the funny thing is, at least in the reporting on that, that they're pretty they're pretty uh, open about like, well, we think it might be pretty bad for us, so I'm not <laughs> sure we're going to release it. Yeah, we're kind of like it's so like I appreciate like it might the, undercut Trump's defense. Of well, this I appreciate whole thing. the candor, right? <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like eh, it's, it's pretty bad, so we're kind of uh, yeah. we're not sure we want to release it or not. Yeah. yeah. Well, those are a couple things to look out for, and um, before we move on to our last subject of the day, I just wanted to take a quick break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, so I just wanted to end the episode uh, on another big story of the week that happened over the weekend. In a way, this news has already been overshadowed by more impeachment developments and, uh, you know, congressional activity. But over the weekend, President Trump announced the death of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, you know, who's been who has appeared over the years in various videos. I think at certain times there was questions about, is this guy still alive or not alive? Trump tweeted some in sort of classic form before he made the actual announcement. Something very exciting just happened or something like that, right? Yeah, something Mm -hmm. very Very big big. just happened. (laughs) Very big just happened. Um, And Kate, you wrote an interesting story for the the website um, that you have to be a TPM Prime member to read. So if that's any 
motivation for our listeners to join yes yeah, sucks club. for you if you're not if you're not a, <laughs> you should not a member you should you definitely do it. that but um you know obviously it kind of harkened back or made people kind of recall president obama's announcement of of uh, osama bin laden's mm-hmm. death they were very different statements as as you can explain in a second but what struck you about both of them kind of you know when you were comparing and contrasting them mm-hmm. what really stood out to you yeah well i mean i got the inkling that I wanted to write about this mostly when the picture from the Situation Room of the Baghdadi raid was circulating because, you know, I think visually the picture of the Obama security team waiting to see if bin Laden had been killed is one of the most lasting images of that administration. You know, I mean, the tension is just palpable. And every Hillary Clinton's hand is on yeah, her, she's covering her mouth. mouth. Yeah. And, you know, Obama is like squished into a corner of the room. He's not sitting at the head of the table. Right. No one is wearing ties and jackets at this point. It's just very clear that this was like, you know, all hands on deck everyone's heart is in their mouth kind of thing. And it almost has like a Last Supper kind of oh, absolutely. sort of thing where, where each face is kind of like, yeah. obviously maybe we're reading things into totally. it, but there's so much there, yeah. so much. Like even, like there's always this thing where Hillary, what is it, she has her face to her, to her mouth? A, yeah, like covering as her a mouth. kind of an yeah. apprehension. And there's right. all, there was this whole dialogue like, all right, is that like, you know, a gender dialogue, right? Because mm. I think she's, she's not the only woman in the picture. No, but there's one, she's of, one of two. One, yeah, one of two. And then you have this thing where Obama, as you said, not at the center, he's kind of squished. Like, if if you didn't know who the president was, you'd never figure he was the president. Because right. yeah, he's exactly. over in the corner like, oh, really shit. He's wearing over. a, wind, a windbreaker. Yeah, yeah. yeah, very, so the whole, yeah, a very, Yeah, very I mean, that's picture. a good point. It's also, I mean, like, visually, it's kind of beautiful. It's, it's a well-composed picture, you know. I think, that's how Pete Souza got his reputation. You don't usually know who the White House photographer is, but mm-hmm. you know. And then it was just this picture was so the picture of Trump. You're the Trump about. picture. The Trump picture. It's you know he's surrounded by pretty notably. It's all white men in the room. They're all fully jacketed, Suited tied. Mm-hmm. There's only five of them. They're all evenly spaced throughout the table and on top of the table. Trump's at the head. <laughs> yeah, they're staring right on into the camera. Whereas in the Obama one, they're all looking out. Uh, at a screen that you can't see from the camera's angle. And yeah, Trump's at the head exactly. And there's a pile of just unconnected Ethernet cords lumped up on the, you know, for the Obama one, uh, kind of a big deal of that picture was um, some of the papers in front of Clinton had to be later obscured because they were classified maps and stuff. So it's just the Trump picture looks so unserious when compared to the Obama one and so staged. And there's been some debate about that, that the metadata might reveal that the picture um, didn't happen during the raid. I've like, there's some, it's not completely clear is the end result, but just kind of those two images, you know, were kind of getting into my head a little bit. And I was just, you know, teasing that out the way these two men handled these raids and what should have been victories, but it's kind of a weird victory because we're celebrating that we murdered someone. It's such a, it's a weird situation in mm-hmm. general. And the way they handled it and the reactions to it were just really fascinating to me because you have Trump going to the Nats game hours after... The World a, Series game. Right, yeah. after ostensibly one of the biggest successes of his administration. And he is... You know he's booed by the whole crowd, and I don't know. I and mean, like when thunderous, right? <laughs> right as right. when compared to the hours after the Bin Laden raid, when people poured into the streets and went to Times Square and Ground Zero, the White House. You know, I was at um, the 
Phillies met scheme when that happened and it was just gradual USA chants were rolling up through the stadium as people found out what had happened you know and then and as I mentioned some of it has to do with the fact that bin Laden took up a massive amount of the American psyche I mean his name became interchangeable with 9-11 and that's not a small thing to disregard Baghdadi is you know was monstrous and murderous and everything but those atrocities happened away from our shores. So I don't. he's much less of a household name yeah. than Bin Laden. I, I would suspect if before this happened, if you had just done a poll, uh-huh. you said, there's someone named Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Do you know who that is? Yeah. I would, I would guess that the number of people who knew who that is would be well under 20% of the population. Yeah. I mean, Trump, you know, just always can't help himself. The idea that these are comparable people in the national psyche is just absurd, mm-hmm. and and uh, and right. Trump said it, it's an even, a bigger, it's a a bigger, bigger deal, deal than Bin Laden. You know, we can. There's obviously a whole conversation of even a even a bad person being killed, celebrating it. There's that's a little that can be a little funny, um, but Bin Laden just bulked so large in the national psyche for a decade. Exactly. It was so long after the attack. So long. I mean, it kind of seemed like the kind of thing, like you sort of assume like he'll never be captured. Like who knows if he's even in our dimension anymore. He's uncapturable. That was such a big thing. And there really was, again, we can, you could have a more kind of critical dialogue about how he was played up, the militarization of American society, all this kind of stuff. But the reality was he was a big thing in the American psyche. And as you said, Kate, it's not just in certain kinds of settings. There was just an outpouring after that happened. People kind of going into the streets. I remember I yeah. remember it. Um, outside the White House, climbing. Outside, you know, just. Light and, poles kind of thing, all I, that sort of and stuff. And I do think that was, uh, that was just a big thing in that administration. It was just a, it was just a big, big thing. And this is not, and again, it, it's a classic Trump thing where, He's whether he's responsible for it, blah blah blah. He's president. He had to make the final call. It's an important thing, but he can't help trying to make it exactly. about Obama. And just like, dude, no. Yeah. No. I mean, and that's part of it too, which is they're not comparable figures to most Americans, right? But you would think a president who is a little more grounded or a little more circumspect could get across the fact that this man has done Still important. horrible Still things. Still very important. Yeah. yeah, not least that, you know, when I was trying to figure out how much he'd been reported on before when this happened, you know, the big story that kept coming up was... um. Kayla Muller uh, was a, an American aid worker who went to uh, Syria to help out with Doctors Without Borders. Her car got ambushed by ISIS, and he basically he took her as his quote unquote bride, which means you know he just raped her repeatedly, and that there was issues. And she eventually was killed. She was killed. Okay. The what happened exactly is still kind of disputed, but. Um, you know, and there was tension with the Obama administration trying to get her back and them suggesting, you know, trading big deal terrorists. It was a whole mess. But that was really the only time where I think he really came into stories if you weren't seeking out things about the violence in Syria or things like that. So, yeah, I mean, but the fact that I just I watched their two speeches, you know, announcing the raids and Obama's happened almost at midnight. You know, as soon as he it was a knew. Sunday night. I'm, I was working at TPM at the yeah, time. Like yeah, like as you said, like 
as soon, like a few hours. As after, soon as yeah. it was positively identified, the body that it was Bin Laden's, he, you know, went out to wherever it is that they have that lectern and the long red carpet. And right. He gave a very, very formal, solemn address. You know, it was very rooted in the atrocities of 9-11. But this, the part where he talks about taking out Bin Laden, it's essentially two sentences about, you know, courageous Americans went in and killed him and that's all and, and then it was, and it was didn't it wasn't I mean you know the words I don't mm-hmm. remember just from memory yeah but I feel like it was almost he said something like you know justice was delivered yeah it wasn't even kind of like we whacked him you know we killed it was in this very uh, solemn but also heavy mm-hmm. language that I mean that was how it was throughout and he finishes that and then he immediately segues into Americans know the cost of war. You know, uh, he makes sure to mention we're not at war with Islam. You know, it's just there is no reveling in the gruesomeness of the reality, which is that we we murdered Busted someone. into a house and shot this guy to death. In yeah. front of people. And mm-hmm. we killed other people, too. And it's not that, you know, again, you can argue retribution, you know, almost 3,000 people died in 9-11, but he it's just... It's an issue of solemnity. Exactly. It's still a heavy thing, right. even if the even if it was a just outcome. Right. Yep. And then, you know, you look at Trump, who says he died like a dog, that he died screaming. Whimpering. You know, mentions that he killed three children with him, which is like, my first reaction was, why are you humanizing this person? You know, this person who committed so many atrocities. I am almost caught myself feeling bad for him because the way Trump portrayed this like extremely pathetic end, not to mention that it absolutely does not befit the, the office of the president to jump up and down on a corpse. Essentially. Well, and, and also like, even if, even if, uh, you know, he, what is it? He blew up a suicide vest, right, allegedly yeah. and killed the kids kind of like, dude, like, it's his fault, but we initiated this, right. and some kids are dead. So, like, maybe yeah. don't get into that. Maybe yeah. that's not a detail that's yeah. important. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's just how the whole thing was. It's just Obama's was very anything he talked about the raid was talking about the bravery of the people who carried it out, and it wasn't about what shape Bin Laden was in or anything like that. And Trump's was just this really distasteful, glorifying in the bloodiness of it, like the the nuts and bolts of how gross it was. And, you know, I just think, I don't know anyone who would watch that would come away feeling... Like you made us proud. Right. (laughs) What what a strong but respectful American military. You know, and so it's just, you know, that happened. He clearly, he was basically saying that it's bigger than bin Laden. He clearly just wants a a moment like Obama got. Um, But yeah, I mean, that news has dissipated already, essentially. Um, He's back into being mired in his impeachment. And I, like we said, some of that is definitely accountable to the fact that bin Laden was a bigger deal to Americans than Baghdadi. That's fine. But the way he handled it was so disgusting and so small that I think even maybe people who are not Trump fans, but who would be like, this was a good move, you know, sent out that one tweet and then we're like, all right, well, back to where we were before. And I also think like, I mean, ISIS has obviously been, you know, minimized to some extent. I don't know what the right word is, but, um, you know, they no longer control territory. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so we don't have these videos of mass beheadings and all the really gruesome stuff that was coming out four or five years ago. And so in a way, like ISIS is sort of on people's minds a little bit less. In, at well, least he's, he's also Trump is also here the victim of his overstatement because he's been saying right and left like, man, I came in three weeks later. They were done. They're history. They're done. They're, yeah. they're defeated. 
And the people who actually follow this stuff say, well, they're territorially defeated, but they're not really gone. We've got to keep the pressure on and right. all this kind of stuff. I mean, one thing that struck me about, and who knows what this this guy's final moments were, but what struck me is that it is that language is exactly Trump's language that he applies everywhere. Mm-hmm. This, you know, kind like of a dog is simpering, his favorite, like, like a dog. His this, favorite the, metaphor. Yeah, all of Trump's things about you know. I dominate, you whimper like a dog. And so who knows, you know, what, again, the the, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs seemed to say like, yeah, I don't know where Trump got that from. But it was, that's clearly Trump's imagination talking. I mean, again, who knows what, you know, uh, yeah, no, it's what true. really happened. Well, and uh, one other non-insignificant part of this is that the Obama administration has never released pictures from that night or pictures of the body, even when people were started accusing them of making it up. But they refused because they said they didn't want to make fodder for, you know, reciprocity for to send out this picture would be like handing these people, oh, here's your martyr, here's right. what the Americans did, don't you want to get back at them? Whereas, you know, not that they've that Trump has released pictures, but he has no problem feeding these details at least into yeah. the and he even, ether. Yeah. He even did say we may release the video. Right. Yeah, I, so. I, I think they said last night the Pentagon is going to release something. Hmm. Um, one thing I was struck by uh, at the time is they, and they must have had this plan going into it, that not only did they not replace uh, release pictures but they quickly gave him a, a an islamic burial mm-hmm. they had a they had a an imam i guess probably u.s military imam who kind of did all the right stuff yeah the burial and, at sea right, and everything and then burial at sea so he's gone mm-hmm. like he will never be seen never yeah. be found there's no burial site something like that but it was also that by doing that by sort of checking all the boxes for an islamic burial that's obviously not about bin laden but that's about respect to the world of Islam, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. people they may not care about bin Laden. I'm sure most Muslims actually see him as a terrible person, but still he was a Muslim, and Muslims, even bad Muslims, should have a Mus- an Islamic funeral. I believe Baghdadi's remains were buried at sea as well, right? Oh, really? Okay, yeah, I didn't, I'm pretty yeah. sure I saw yeah, that. Yeah, it makes. I mean, it's it's a given what the U.S. interests are. Yeah. It 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 uh, it makes sense. It's yeah. a, it's a you know logical way. Well, to and go it's about just. It. It, I don't know. I think the fundamental thing here is in some ways it's just that's how a superpower should act. You know, it's we we can take out our enemies, but we do it with some gravitas. And that's just a tone that, of course, Trump was not at all able to rise to in right. this moment. Well, I encourage everyone to, to read Kate's article. Do you remember the headline off the top of your head? A Tale of Two Raids or something uh-huh. like that? Um, I think how Trump and Obama helmed their missions. Yeah. Join TPM Prime. Yeah. Read the post. Um, it's worth your time. Yeah, exactly. And remember, uh, Grace Cold Brew. Um, wait, I have the. I guess I'm back to doing the coffee. <laughs> How? What did you think? Was it, it felt felt good? Oh, felt great. Three, okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So remember, if you want to give Grady's Cold Brew iced coffee a try, you can get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember to uh, join TPM, become a member of TPM Prime. Yeah, it helps us out. All right, cool. Thank you. Later, folks. Thanks, everyone.